Okay, today I'm continuing with a series on kingdom and what the kingdom of heaven looks like. I don't know how many of you here have ever read through the Lord of the Rings, the, the Tolkien books, or maybe you've just seen the movies. Um, years ago, I had the opportunity with my son to sit down and read through all of them together, and it was a fascinating experience to read those books and then reread them again later. And uh, there's so much that goes on in The Lord of the Rings. If you don't know the story, it involves characters in an imaginary world, an imaginary world that Tolkien calls Middle-earth, and it has wizards who conjure up these amazing spells. It has elves who live in the forest and have extraordinary abilities in what they can do. There are dwarves who possess the knowledge and the technology to dig up entire mountains. And there are these vast armies of men led by brave warrior kings. All of these epic things going on in the Lord of the Rings. And they all come to unite together in one battle, a battle against one ring, one ring of power, one ring that corrupts the power of whoever possesses it. And so all of these mighty, strong, powerful creatures in Middle-earth unite for this, but they cannot defeat the power of the one ring because it is precisely the power that they bring that the ring corrupts to use against them. In the end, Middle-earth is saved by hobbits hobbits, these small creatures who live in peace and they're farmers and they live in a place in Middle Earth called the Shire and they sort of keep to themselves. They're not warriors. They're not powerful. They have no power. But it is precisely because they have no power that hobbits like Bilbo Baggins and Frodo Baggins can hold the ring without being corrupted by it. And it's these small hobbits, the most unlikely of all the creatures in Middle-earth, that end up being the ones who save everyone in Middle-earth, precisely because they have no power and they don't bring any large action into the battlefield. I wonder if Tolkien had in mind some of these parables of Jesus. Well, we know that Tolkien was a Christian, and so he's familiar with the Bible. And I wonder if maybe some of these parables that we're looking at form something of the backdrop for his imaginary world of Middle-earth and the Lord of the Rings, and this idea that sometimes the least likely of places produces the greatest effect and the greatest result. Today we're going to read about that. That comes from Matthew 13 and looking at two parables that are stuck right in the middle of that chapter. It's the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast. Before I read that, let's pray together. God, as we open your word here today, we pray that your spirit would open our hearts to see what it is that you have for us today. May we not just see words on a page, but may we hear your words spoken to us. 
We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, normally I don't have the passage up on the screen. I mean, because I want us to see the larger context of the passage around it. Uh, today I'm looking at just five verses, and they're very short stories. So I, it actually is going to be up here behind me because you can see the whole story on one screen with some of these, okay? Uh, but it's also printed in your bulletins, or there are Bibles in the chairs where you can look that up as well. Matthew 13, verse 31. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows... It is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, something today then about the kingdom in this parable. So I, I'm going to remind us of sort of the, the big overview of what we're doing in this, that we, we're talking about the kingdom, what the kingdom of heaven is, what it looks like, how we know it. And, and we've noted a couple of things about it already. First of all, we've noted that the kingdom of heaven is not exclusively or only a spiritual place, that it's also physical. Physical in the sense that the Bible talks about resurrection and recreation. That it has something very real to do with where we live now. We've also talked about kingdom as being not only future-oriented. That it's not just a someday thing, but the Gospels declare that when Jesus comes, that, that Jesus ushers in the kingdom with him. That the kingdom, in some sense, has already begun right now, right here. That's what we've been working with through this series of, so how do we recognize that? What does that look like? What does it mean for you and I to live as people of the kingdom? people that God is called to be a part of his kingdom. How do we know that, what that looks like? We're looking at that through the Gospel of Matthew and through stories that Jesus tells in Matthew, parables. And so far, we have been exclusively just in Matthew chapter 13 because so many of these stories are right there in Matthew 13. So this is now our third week just in Matthew 13 looking at these kingdom parables. So let's start with that reminder of what a parable is, since we're looking at parables. And I've said this the last couple of weeks, but let's remember, parables are stories that convey a kingdom idea and call for a response. That's what parables do. They tell us some idea about what the kingdom is, 
And they always leave us with a response. We're supposed to react in some way. Not just having heard a nice moral lesson, but we should do something in response to parables. That's what parables do. And in all of these parables that we're looking at, they all talk about the kingdom. Right? Jesus introduces that. The kingdom of heaven is like, and then goes on to a parable. Let's also remind ourselves of a little bit of the context around this, since this is now our third week in Matthew 13. We began with the parable of the sower, all the different soils where the farmer throws the seed. Last week, we looked at the parable of the weeds and the parable of the net, which are bookends, right? There there are parables where there's other stories tucked into the middle of them. And that's what we saw last week. And that kingdom idea from the parable of the weeds that we saw last week, it was a kingdom idea that showed us that, wow, the kingdom of God actually grows in some pretty messy places. That there are weeds in the middle of the wheat that we saw in that story. That's all backdrop because what we're looking at today, those few verses we read today, comes right in the middle of that story. Jesus tells that parable of the weeds. Then he tells what we just read today. And then Matthew goes on to circle back to the parable of the weeds. So we need to understand that context, that we're looking at stories today that are tucked right into the middle of that other kingdom idea, that other kingdom idea that reminded us, all right, the kingdom can sometimes look like a pretty messy place. A messy place. And then some further explanation within that with these two stories. The parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast. You know, I've noted all along that these come to us as something that um, displays some kind of a twist. There's a shock somewhere in the story. Last week, for instance, we noted that there was a shocking twist in the way that the farmer tells his servants, uh, don't pull up the weeds, just let them grow. Just let them all grow in the field together, side by side, and we'll take care of it at the harvest. We'll deal with it then. That the people who heard the story would have been surprised by that. Wait a minute, what? That's not how you're supposed to farm. There's something shocking in the story that way. Today's story, though, I want us to note this. There's not a shocking twist in these stories at least in the story itself. Everybody knew that mustard seeds are small seeds, and everybody knew that they grew to be very large plants. Jesus is not giving them any shocking news there. They knew that already. And, okay, they didn't have grocery stores and bakeries back then. People made bread in their homes. So everyone was a home baker and knew that. Everybody knew how bread was made. Everybody knew that in order to make bread, you've got to take some of the yeast, and because it's not grocery stores, it's not like the packet of yeast. It's, it's actually a dried piece of old bread that had gone stale that they would take and break apart and work that into the new dough because that would be the leavener. That's what would cause the new bread to rise. Everybody knew that, that when you make bread, you take a little scrap of the old one, just a pinch, and work it into the new dough because that's what makes the leavener. If you don't do that step, you end up getting crackers. It doesn't rise at all. 
Uh, it's, it's what the Israelites made at the Passover because they didn't have time to wait for it to rise. So they all knew that. There's nothing surprising here. Well, of course you take a little bit of yeast and it only takes a little bit and you put it into the dough and it works all the way through. There's nothing surprising about these stories. So what's the twist? What's the shock here? I think the context of the story helps us with that. Remembering that we're seeing this inside of a larger story. A larger story which, first of all, confronts the people with the idea of, well, that farmer just did an odd thing by not pulling up weeds, but also introduces to them the idea of, wait a minute, the kingdom of God is like that? Kingdom of heaven is like that? Now Jesus is pressing that further. Even though these stories don't present something shocking or new, they do push further into the idea of, this tells us something about the kingdom. And that part is shocking. What do you mean the kingdom of heaven is like that? Like a mustard seed. Like that little pinch of yeast that goes into this large amount of bread dough. What do you mean the kingdom is like that? That's a shocking piece that Jesus keeps pressing into with these stories. Because at this point, the people who are listening to him are becoming surprised by that. By this notion of what the kingdom is like in that way. That it can't really be something that small, can it? It can't have that kind of a shock. The people of Israel talked about God as a God of glory. Right? That God is glorious. When they worshipped him, they worshipped him as the God of glory. That You read in the Bible the, the, the pictures of angels who sing holy, holy, glory to God. Right? Glory, in the Hebrew language, it's the word kavod. And it literally means heavy, weighty. It literally means it refers to something that's so big, so enormous, so huge that you cannot ignore it. You cannot get around it. You have to be confronted by it. When the Hebrew people talk about glory and the glory of God, that's what they mean. This is enormous, not small. It's not tiny. That's not the God that they think they're worshiping. And yet Jesus brings in these stories then to say, but the kingdom is like that. Not what you imagine in your head, but something smaller. I've used a couple of words to describe that in the title of today's message. Affect and effect. That this story tells us something about small effect and big effect. Um, and if you're not familiar, all right, bonus. You're not just getting a Bible lesson today. We're going to do a little grammar here too that you'll walk out with a little, uh, maybe a little English knowledge. Because do you know the difference? The difference between those two words, effect and effect? I mean, affect with an A and effect with an E. Affect is a verb. It's an action. It's something you do, right? So, so when you talk about affect, you're talking about the actual action that's performed, the doing of something. It's a verb that way. These parables then talk about small affect, small action, small doing of something. But they talk about big effect, 
Effect is not a verb. Effect is a noun. It describes something. Effect is the result which comes about because of an action that has been done. That's what Jesus is after here. He's talking about small action, small affect, but the result, what happens because of it, the outcome is big, is enormous. And that is something that God's people found shocking. The ones who listened to Jesus tell this story. That doesn't make sense. How can small action produce a big result? It's not what they were thinking, and it's not what they were looking for. It's not what they were used to. And and it's not what they saw in the world around them when they looked at the other nations, the other people. You need strong action to produce strong result. You've got to go in with strength to come out with big results. They didn't see it the way Jesus is describing it here. So that's what Jesus is pushing at in this parable, this idea that small actions bring about the kingdom in ways that maybe we sometimes miss and don't always see before us. It's one of those ideas that come before us in this parable. We've been looking at that, right? In in all the parables that we're looking at, we're trying to ask ourselves, what's the kingdom idea? Where is the kingdom idea in these stories? And this story has a kingdom idea in it as well. These two stories, this mustard seed and the yeast. A kingdom idea that shows us the smallest actions produce the largest results. The smallest actions produce the largest results. And the people who heard Jesus tell this story found that shocking. What do you mean the kingdom is like that? But I'm a little surprised, I would say. I'm a little surprised that they found it to be shocking because isn't that really the pattern of God's people, the history of Israel, over and over again from the very beginning? It seems to me that They should have known this. It should have been obvious in some ways. At least for me who looks back on it now 2,000 years later and reads over the whole Bible, there's some hindsight that comes into it. How did they not see that? How did they not know it? How did they not get it? Because that idea is part of who they were from the very beginning, the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, God's people, started with one couple, Abraham and Sarah. That God comes to this one couple, Abraham and Sarah, and he doesn't tell them to do something huge. He doesn't say, all right, you're going to make a great nation now. In fact, God tells them to do something pretty simple. God comes to Abraham and Sarah, and what's the one thing God tells them to do? I want you to move and live somewhere else. Just do that. Just go live over there. That's the only thing God told them to do, and they did. That one small thing is what God used to begin the nation of Israel. That one small thing of 
um, don't live here, go live over there. Just go live over there and just live there. And from that, God starts the nation of Israel. A small thing that produces a large result. Later on, when God's people are slaves in Egypt, that they're captive and made to do work there in Egypt, and as they press against the oppression of slavery there, God does not come to them and say, all right, we're going to get together a big army now and we're going to fight back and we're going to overthrow. There's going to be a revolution, a rebellion, and you're going to be the ones to push that and do that. That's not what God says. What God tells them is, here's what I want you to do. I want you to prepare a meal with a lamb and take some of that lamb. And I want you to paint over the top of your door. Just paint the top of your door. And then you and your family go inside and sit down and have a meal. Do that. Just do that. And God does the rest with the Passover story to free the people of Israel and redeem them from their slavery. The only thing he asked them to do was paint your door and sit down and have a meal together. And God does the rest. Small action, simple action, but a big result that comes from it. Forty years later, Israel comes to the promised land and it's Joshua this time who's bringing the people of Israel in and they cross the Jordan River and the very first city they get to is Jericho. Jericho is a fortified stronghold. It's impenetrable. You cannot defeat it. So they come to this giant city and God does not come with a military operation. All right, here's the battle plan. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what you're going to do. God comes to Joshua and he says, I want you to um, get together a marching band and go for a walk. Do that. And God does the rest. Something anyone could do. Just march around with a few instruments and God does the rest. Small action, a big result. Later on, when Philistines come and invade their area and they've got their champion gladiator, Goliath, the guy that nobody could beat, God does not raise up an equal champion of someone stronger to fight against him and overpower him, but instead, it's a small boy in a slingshot who goes out before the giant Goliath. Small action, a big result. How could God's people not see this, right? This was their story. It's it's who they are, of course. God always works through the small things to bring about the big things that way. But I guess this story has to confront us with that idea, though. We look back at the Bible and see that, but let's bring that to our world today, okay? Let's bring that to our time. As we're thinking about and we're considering Where does the kingdom of God exist in our world? And how do we know it? How do we see it? Where is it? Maybe we have to start asking ourselves that same question that Matthew was putting in front of us in his gospel in this story. Am I seeing the kingdom of heaven in small actions? Am I looking for the little things? Am I paying attention to the small actions? Because that seems to be what the gospel is telling us here, right? That it's in these small, seemingly insignificant actions that the kingdom is most evident and produces the largest result. 
that we see that over and over again. Matthew reminds us of that, and, and he gives his own little commentary towards it at the end of that, verse 35. Um, that quote from uh, quote that comes from Psalm, Psalm 78, that quote that ends the passage there about the kingdom being hidden. That's not Jesus speaking. That's not Jesus saying those words. That's Matthew. Matthew's putting his own little commentary in after these stories. Jesus told these things about the kingdom, but Matthew is looking at that and saying, wow, it really comes across as something that feels so hidden to so many people. And if it was true of the people back in the time of Jesus, and Matthew includes it in his story here for us to see today, I think we better pay attention to that too. That maybe the kingdom that we're talking about in this series is a kingdom that for us in our world today can still seem quite hidden. That we have to look for it. And when we look for it, we look for maybe what looks like or appears to be the smallest or perhaps what appears to be the most insignificant actions which then turn out to produce the greatest result. That's a question that comes forward to us in these stories today that shows us how that works. Matthew, of course, is writing a gospel, so he's got a larger picture in mind as well, that it's not just about identifying the kingdom as something isolated to the world that they lived in then or the world that we live in now. But, but of course, Matthew was also giving a nod here towards Jesus himself. That there's something in this story that also shows us Jesus. That Jesus at moments, I mean, he does do these really big things, miracles, right? But he also does some really small things sits by a well and talks to a Samaritan woman, just spends an afternoon with someone whose life seems to be falling apart. Small things. Jesus does that too. But it's those small things that also produce such big result, isn't it? Small things in that Jesus surrenders himself to the authorities. The disciples, the people that, that followed Jesus, the people that were expecting the kingdom, they were expecting the big revolt. They were looking for Jesus to be the military leader who was going to overthrow Rome and give them a place of prominence in the world. That's what they were expecting, but Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, Jesus surrenders himself to them. He gives himself in love. For all people, to save the world, that one act by one person, Jesus, who comes with all the divine glory of God, is used to save the entire world. Small actions are what produce the big results. Matthew doesn't just want us to see that as something that continues to exist in the kingdom as it works in our world around us, but to also remember that that's who Jesus is. 
That's how Jesus himself embodied the kingdom as it comes to us. So what do we do with that then? How do we take this away? We've been talking about not just the kingdom idea, but the response. What's the response that we should give to something like this? And maybe we need to qualify that because, so what am I saying here? We shouldn't think about big things, that I shouldn't make big plans, that I should only think small. That doesn't feel right either, does it? It doesn't feel like God's calling me to be a mediocre disciple, to just settle for the smallest thing I can find. That doesn't seem to be what God is after here. But maybe it's more about an awareness of how the small things show up in the biggest ways. How it's the small things that show us the most of where the kingdom exists. What's the response then? How do we respond to this? What is it that we're looking for out of this? What does Jesus want from us? I would maybe say it with these three words. Simple, faithful obedience. Simple, faithful obedience. Remember the context. Remember the larger story here, okay? Right? The, the parables that Jesus is telling that this one is tucked right in the middle of. Parables that had to do with farming and what grows and the crop that is produced. And we've talked about that in weeks past. That Jesus is pointing towards a kingdom, right? The, the bigger kingdom idea that's outside and around this story is that kingdom idea that the kingdom grows and produces fruit. We've talked about that in weeks past. That spiritual fruit that we've named from other parts of Scripture, Paul talks about that. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those kinds of attributes are the spiritual fruit that are produced. God calls his people to be people who produce fruit like that as evidence of his kingdom. How do you produce fruit like that? How do you do that? I think Jesus is giving us then in this story tucked in the middle a nod in that direction. You want to take a step towards being the kind of person that produces that kind of spiritual fruit in your life? Start with this. How about you just start with simple, faithful obedience? You don't need an enormous battle plan for how you're going to march into the kingdom. But maybe it's just the small, day-by-day, moment-by-moment choices of saying, I'm going to do my best to be faithfully obedient, even in the smallest things. That's what Jesus is looking for here. That's what these stories are illustrating for us. That I don't need to be doing something huge for the kingdom of God. I don't need to be matching myself on the level of a Billy Graham crusade. But maybe just those simple tiny things that I do have before me in my day are actually pretty big things. Produce big result. That we do that simply by that life that produces spiritual fruit. So if you're here today and you're listening to this story and you, maybe you think to yourself that, you know what, I'm, 
I don't have the strength or the ability or the means to step up and be a part of God's kingdom that way. This story's for you then. These parables are for you. Because God is not looking for strong actions to be the thing that brings about his kingdom. Or if you're hearing these stories today and you're thinking to yourself as you think about the kingdom of God, yeah, you've been talking about this for a couple of weeks, but I don't really understand that much about the Bible or about theology and I can't wrap my head around how this whole kingdom of God thing works. I don't have the knowledge to do that. These stories are for you. Because God does not depend on human brilliance for his kingdom to take shape. Or if you're the kind of person who thinks, you know, I, I see people around me who have such extraordinary talents and skills. I can see amazing things that other people can do for the church and for the kingdom. And I don't have that. I don't have anything amazing to offer I don't know what I can contribute to God's kingdom. These stories are for you because God is not looking for superstars for his kingdom to come about. He's looking for simple, faithful obedience. And that's something that lands for each one of us in the lives that we live and how we do that. To be clear, as we close this, that uh, it's not our faithful obedience that earns us a spot in the kingdom, right? We, We don't do these acts of faithful obedience to get into the kingdom. Let's be clear about that. Jesus has already done what was needed for us to be into the kingdom, That's already happened. We celebrated that around this table here this morning, that Jesus has done what's needed for us to be into the kingdom. What we are talking about is a response to God because of the kingdom we have already been given in our faithful obedience. Simple steps, day by day the things that we do to respond to God like that. God has built this kingdom of heaven to be a place where small affect, that simple faithful obedience that we bring, produces big effect, the flourishing of kingdom fruitfulness. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the stories that you told and shared that show us your kingdom and remind us today that whoever we are, that we have a place in that, that you've called us to that, equipped us to that, and that nothing is too small. And in fact, it is the small things that you use the most to be part of your kingdom. So God, we're praying for a couple things today. First of all, we're praying that, uh, that you open our eyes to see those small things around us because we have to admit, often we miss it, just as the people in the Bible often missed it. God, secondly, we're praying that 
you show us how those small, simple things that you call us to do, to be obedient to you, produce such large effect for your kingdom. So keep us on track to focus on doing even the little things to the best of our ability. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.